passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. While they're going out, I hope everybody had a good Christmas, and it's good to see you here on New Year. New Year's. We, I was expecting there would be four, so there's more than four people, so that's good. I'm celebrating that. And if you don't know me, by the way, my name is Kurt. I'm typically not the, the preacher on this campus. I usually uh, teach on the Spirit Lake campus, but Jordan and I switched. Gives me a, a chance to be with you guys once again, which I think is really pretty fun and and pretty cool, and I get to preach in this facility one of the last times that we are here. And I don't know if you guys have had a chance to stop over at the new facility. I was there working two days this week, and it's really getting close. It's really looking good. I'm so excited how God has been so incredibly good to us at Crosswinds Church to provide that facility for this campus. And uh, the neat part is, you know, as this whole thing came together, when we just looked at originally opening multiple sites, the reason we wanted to do that is we felt that we could do together things that individual churches couldn't do alone, that would be stronger together. And as I see the Spencer campus coming together and people from both campuses getting a chance to be there and help, that's just exciting to me, as we work together to reach people with Jesus Christ. Now, uh, one of the things we like to do at Crosswinds is that usually at the very beginning of a year, we like to encourage you to read the Bible, and we like to do a little Bible reading challenge for you, and that's what this message is going to be about, uh, sort of a message on why we should read the Bible, an encouragement to read the Bible. And hopefully, if you've been around Crosswinds for any length of time, you know that we highly value God's Word. I always talk about, uh, with my staff and with other people, we keep our finger in the text, because the power is in God's Word changing our lives. And I think of how the Bible talks about this. There's a verse out there. It says uh, in the Bible, it says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's just a reminder that just as important as physical food to sustain your physical life on a daily basis, and we eat at least three times a day, right? Some of us are going, I eat more? Yeah, right. But we need God's Word for spiritual food, not just to begin our spiritual life, but to sustain our spiritual life, which is why we always want to be preaching from the Bible, which is why we want to encourage you to be regularly reading the Bible on your own. You don't eat just once a week, do you? And if you did, you wouldn't be too healthy or strong. We eat all the time. So this is why we encourage you to be in a regular Bible reading plan. So before I dive into this message, let me just take a moment to pray and ask for God's Holy Spirit to work effectively among us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Word. Uh, Thank you for what your Word does in our life and how your Word um, changes us and molds us. Thank you also for your faithfulness to your church. Thank you especially for your faithfulness to the Spencer campus right now. Thank you for the lives that have been changed the spiritual lives that are encouraged, the spiritual growth that is taking place. Thank you also for the new facility that you have been so faithful to provide. And uh, Jesus, we just ask that as we get into a new facility that you wouldn't just grow uh, the church numerically, but you would grow the impact of this church spiritually, that more people 
would come to love you, Jesus, and have a high devotion to your word and love for your word. And as we talk about the importance of your word in our lives this morning, help me to do that effectively and clearly and change our hearts and lives so we walk out more like Jesus than we came in. And all God's people said, amen. I want to begin by telling you about what was happening in August of 1885 in Chicago. It was a sweltering hot summer day, and it started to rain, and it was a deluge. In fact, Chicago received six and a half inches of rain in only 24 hours. The flooding in that city of 750,000 people was massive. The runoff from the Chicago stockyards into the um, Chicago River was just monstrous. All kinds of sewage washed into the Chicago River. In fact, the, the septic system in the city also overflowed, flowing into the Chicago River. And that toxic brew, bloop, that toxic brew, I tried to say, flowed down the river, ended up in Lake Michigan. And the Chicago Tribune ran an article about how that toxic brew was actually sucked up out of Lake Michigan into the drinking water supply of the city. And there was risk of typhoid and, and cholera and all kinds of dysentery and other waterborne diseases. People were talking about this all over the city and, and soon began to hear references of people getting sick from this septic sewage stuff that was in the water system. And eventually it was talked about how one in eight people of Chicago died that year from typhoid, cholera, and a host of other diseases. It was published in the paper. In fact, that was accepted and repeated as truth for more than 100 years, from 1885 to the year 2000. At that time, a lady who was an investigative reporter was writing a, a book on the history of the Chicago River. and she, Her name is Libby Hill. She had planned to set aside an entire chapter to the 1885 epidemic because of the massive amounts of sewage that were pumped into that river. But as she started to do the research, first what she found shocked her. She looked at the death rates in the city of Chicago that year and then started comparing it to other years and she found that in 1885 the death rate was actually lower rather than higher. She said, well, I thought one in eight people are said to have died in that epidemic. She continued to do some research and found out that there actually was no epidemic at all. It was just that that truth had been published in the paper, fake news, you know how that goes? And then it had been repeated amongst people and talked about to the point that after being talked about for such a long period of time, it became accepted as established fact when in fact there was no truth to it. If one in eight people in the city of Chicago had died that year, there'd be over 90,000 bodies. It would be all over the street. Remember, it's a city of almost 700,000 people. It didn't happen. You know, some people consider the Bible to be the same thing. They consider the stories in the Bible and the miracles in the Bible just things that we accept as truth because it's been repeated for so many times and talked about by so many people that over time we now accept the Bible and its miraculous events as true. And they say, but if you could actually go back and examine the facts of history, 
you'd find that they're not true at all. Is that the case? Is the Bible just a bunch of legends accepted as facts over time? I don't think so. In fact, in my research on this subject, as a pastor I've done a lot of research on this over the years, uh, the Bible is actually rock-solid true. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at four major reasons why you can trust God's Word, why you can base your life on God's Word. The reasons we're going to give are how this Bible gives evidence of being a very supernatural book, different from other ones. There's evidence that this Bible is a completely trustworthy book. You can face your life on it. Then you're going to see, we're going to see how this book is an authoritative book, and we have to treat it differently than we do other things that we read. And lastly, we're going to see how this book is really the only way for you and I to know the truth about who God is and what God has done. So if you have your outlines, take them out. We're going to begin on the top with point number one. It says the Bible is a supernatural book. Now, when it comes to understanding the Bible and understanding uh, what the Bible is, really there's one verse, I think, that sums it up. And if you haven't memorized this verse, I'd encourage you to memorize this verse. I have it in your outlines for you. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Look at the first part of that verse. All Scripture, the whole entire book, is breathed out by God. Now, some of you have an older translation that might say all Scripture is inspired by God. Um, I'm not a real fan of that translation because the word inspired, at least when it was originally written, I think uh, it was a better way of communicating things. But today, in the way the English language is used, when we talk about being inspired, that's something that we think uh, sort of happens to us or just comes upon us. Like I have to write something. What I do is I drink a lot of coffee and then I feel really inspired. Anybody ever do that? Use coffee to get inspired? Well, that's not what this is saying. The Greek word here is theopneustenos. Literally, all of this Bible is literally God's breath. The words of this entire book, even though it's written by human authors, are exactly what God wants to say to us. It's God speaking to us exactly what He wants to say. So if you ever what it would be, wonder what it would be like to have God speak to you, it's right here, God's Word. Now, if this is true, that this book is literally supernatural in nature, and it is God's words to us, you would think that there would be some uh, evidence to prove that. And I'm going to give you six lines of evidence to prove that the Bible is supernatural in nature. Now, I'll admit that taken individually uh, as pieces of evidence, they probably would not be sufficient to convince you of the supernatural nature of this book. But I think taken collectively, I believe there are very sure evidence of the supernatural nature of the Bible. For instance, number one, one, or in this case in your outline point A, the Bible is historically accurate. You know, when it comes to references in the Bible, it talks about people, it talks about places, when it talks about events, the Bible is 100% historically 
accurate and true. Uh, Lee Strobel, in his book, maybe you've read it, Case for Christ, he talks about archaeologists who've examined the Bible and who look things up in history and they found every single time the Bible has been proven right, not proven wrong. Specifically, he uses uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, which, by the way, were both written by Luke. In the book of Luke and Acts, Luke references 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands. And archaeologists say they can find absolutely no mistake in the naming or identity of any of them. Completely historically accurate. Uh, A Jewish archaeologist, Nelson Gluck, not a Christian, by the way, He goes on to say, there has never been an archaeological discovery which has contradicted the Bible. Every archaeological discovery out there has only served to further confirm the Bible. Now remember, this is not a Christian guy. This is a Jewish guy. So this is impressive. So I say this in contradiction or in comparison to, say, other books of other religions. Take, for instance, the Book of Mormon, which the Mormon church bases their, really their whole faith on. Just so you know, by the way, the, the Mormon church is not a Christian church. That may be news to some of you. It's not. Uh, the Book of Mormon talks about a vast civilization in the Americas, our nation. It gives coinages, it gives places, it gives cities, all kinds of things that supposedly happened here. But do you know there has not been a single archaeological discovery that has unearthed anything found in the Book of Mormon in the United States? Zero evidence. Now, I think it's interesting because you talk to the Mormons about this and they'll say, well, we just have to learn to take things by faith. Well, yeah, that's blind faith because there's never been an archaeological discovery that has confirmed anything in the Book of Mormon. But every archaeological discovery has has confirmed the Bible as true and never been wrong. Big difference between these books. Another line of evidence for the Bible's supernatural character is the Bible is prophetically accurate. Now, we hear this all the time in church, but we often don't understand the significance of that. You know, there's prophecy in the Old Testament that that was given at one time in history and then was later fulfilled in another point in history, or prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus, therefore was filled in the New Testament times about Jesus. I mean, hear this, but we need to understand that in comparison to other religions. For instance, if you go to Buddhism or you go to Confucianism, you'll find in the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita and their religious books, zero prophecies about the future. They don't ever claim to say anything about the future because they can't speak about the future. They're just a man's words who doesn't know the future. You go to the Quran and you go look at Muhammad. The Quran only has, by the way, one prophecy in it, It's a very vague prophecy, a little similar to a Chinese fortune cookie. (laughs) You know, it could be true for just about anybody, but nothing else. The Bible, if it is truly God's words, you would expect that God would speak about the future with authority and accuracy, and you find that He does all the time. In your outline, I give you a bullet point here. The Bible, by the way, gives over 2,000 prophecies about the future. Very specific prophecies that are fulfilled in accuracy and detail later in history. 
Only God can do that. If this book is God's words to us, because only God knows the future. Let me give you some examples. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, tells us the exact time of Jesus' birth. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, tells us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Now, Micah, I believe, I hope I remember this correctly, I think he writes around 700 years, is it 500 or 700 years before Jesus' birth? But look what he says. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose comings forth is from of old, from ancient days." Let me read this to you again, but give a little bit more explanation. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You look at the size of Bethlehem today, it's very large. At that time, it was one of those really tiny, tiny towns. Now, in Iowa, we know about tiny towns, don't we? Where you can, like, check your, check your phone for a moment and actually have passed through the whole thing. That is what Bethlehem was like. And Micah says God is inspiring him to say that out of Bethlehem will come one who will be ruler over Israel, but look at who they are, whose comings forth from of old, from ancient days. Literally that means that person's origins will be from eternity past. That person has always existed. There's only one person who's always existed. That's God. This was said hundreds of years before Jesus came. The exact small city of His birth and the fact that He would be born as a human being, yet also God. It's amazing. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 tells us Jesus would enter Jerusalem on a cult, and He did. Zechariah 11, 12 through 13 tells us Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That doesn't sound that important, but it's not 29 pieces of silver. Not 28 pieces of silver, not 31 uh, pieces of gold, literally 30 pieces of silver, writing hundreds of years before this happens. Now, let me show you a section of this prophecy, and I like the way it comes together. Then I said to them, well, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, well, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages... 30 pieces of silver. He's like, oh, I wonder why they're paying me 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. It's easier to see how Zechariah is writing about this. Uh, okay, God, you want me to tell them to give me my wages? They gave me my wages, 30 pieces of silver. I don't quite get on all this and what I'm doing. You want me to throw it to the potter? Okay, I'll throw them in the house of the Lord. I'm just doing what you're telling me, Lord. Jesus was betrayed for how many pieces of silver? 30, not 29, not 31, not pesos, 30 pieces of silver. What did Judas do with it? Threw it in the house of the Lord. It's interesting how Zechariah is sort of writing this. He doesn't even get the full significance of what he's doing. He's just obeying what the Lord is telling him to do. And yet we see this all fulfilled later in history. Um, Isaiah 53 verse 9 describes how Jesus would be put to death between two criminals, yet buried in a rich man's tomb. 
Once again, that's prophecy that's fulfilled with great accuracy later in history. There are literally thousands of prophecies like this, all very specific, cannot happen by chance unless God is the one who knows the future. God is the author of this book, and He puts those details in here. I'll give you another piece of evidence for the supernatural nature of this book. The Bible is a durable book. Now, again and again throughout history, and we typically don't study this in the church. I've had a chance to study some of it. Uh, the opponents of Christ, the opponents of the church, have tried to wipe this book off the face of the earth. They have often tried to do this for sustained periods of time. They've tried to do this for long periods of time through vicious persecution of Christians and the church. But you know what happens? This book continues to endure. No opponents of the church have been able to wipe this book away from the church. In fact, today, if you were to go to look at ancient manuscripts, and I'm going to make a, a rough estimation here, uh, there are more than a thousand times more ancient manuscripts of the Bible than there are any other writings from ancient history. There is more, and I know it's, maybe it's 800 times, maybe it's not quite a thousand times, but it's really close. This book is incredibly durable. I'd tell you a fun story on this. Voltaire, he's an atheist, he was a philosopher, he wrote... Uh, profusely uh, against the church and against this book. And one of his most famous quotes in 1776 was this. He said, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. He says, most people will come to their senses and they'll never look at this book again. <laughs> you know what happened? Fifty years after his death, his house was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society to house Bibles. And they purchased it because he had a printing press in his basement that he used for printing his material. They needed the printing press to print Bibles because there was such a high demand for Bibles. So who had the last laugh on that one? God did. In fact, today, if you go to look at the New York Times bestsellers list, they'll give you all the best-selling books, but they're not really being honest. Because the best-selling book of all time in all history and will be the best-selling book this year will be the Bible. This book is endured because God has supernaturally sustained it. Another reason for the piece of evidence for the supernatural character of this book, the Bible is a consistent book. Now, for those of you who are new to the Bible, we know that the Bible is one book, but it's actually not just one book. It's a small library. It's a library of 66 different books, isn't it? And the Bible was actually written in three different languages. The Old Testament mostly in Hebrew, Hebrew though in Daniel, a little bit of Aramaic. The New Testament in Greek. It was written over a span of 1,500 years. It was written by people who come from completely diverse and different backgrounds and cultures. It was written by one person who was a king another person who was a physician, and another person who was a farmer, by the way, Amos, sycamore fig tree farmer. Now, what's so amazing is they write the books in the Bible. Remember, 2 Timothy 3.16 says they were not writing their words, but the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to, or 
God was breathing through them to write exactly what God's words were to us. Now, here's what's interesting. With such diversity of authorship, how is there unity of message? Unless God is the one who is the supernatural author behind all these things. Think of it this way. Try and put 66 different people in a room, people from different cultures, from 1,500 years of history, who speak different languages, who come from different professions, and try and get them to agree on anything. Try to get them to agree about politics. Uh, We can't even do that today. Try and get them to uh, agree about truth. Try and get them to agree about medicine. It's impossible. Yet, all the books of the Bible agree about the same thing, the most diverse subject of all, God Himself and His plan for us and for all of humanity. To me, that's incredible evidence for the supernatural character of the Bible and that 2 Timothy 3.16 is right, that all of the Scripture is literally God speaking His words through the prophets to us. Another piece of evidence, the Bible is a miraculous book. So the Bible is truly miraculous. Now, if, we would, if it's true that the Bible is God's words to us, you would think that God, there would be times where He would intervene in human history, maybe do things in human history, and the Bible would speak of those times where He miraculously intervened in human history. Today, when the miracles of the Bible are examined, most of the skeptics say, well, that's just evidence that it can't be true because miraculous things can't happen. Evidence of that is Thomas Jefferson. Maybe you're familiar with him. He was a product of his age. He was a product of the Enlightenment. He said, I won't believe anything unless it can be repeated and proved in a laboratory. And so one day, Thomas Jefferson literally took the Gospels and he got his pair of scissors out and he cut all the miracles of Jesus right out of his Bible. Literally. He said they can't be true. You can't repeat them to prove them. And while Thomas Jefferson was a very smart man, he was also blind to some obvious things. When it comes to things that happen in history, we cannot prove history by repeating it in a laboratory, can we? The way we know historical events are true is by talking to the eyewitnesses who were there. For instance, how do we know that George Washington rode across the Delaware in 1776? Can you put that into a, a, into a laboratory and repeat it? But we accept it as true today because of the eyewitnesses who are there. How do we know that Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address in 1863? By the eyewitnesses who are there. We can't put it in a laboratory and repeat it. Now, the Bible, it talks about miraculous events that took place. We can't put that in a laboratory and repeat it. But what if we were able to talk to the eyewitnesses who were there? If you read the Bible, you noticed that the stories of Jesus are all based on eyewitness testimony of people who were there. The Gospel of Luke, it begins by Luke not being an original apostle, but He does say right at the beginning, I researched these things thoroughly. I interviewed the people who were there so I know I'm telling you the truth. 
the Gospel of Mark, written by John Mark. We studied it for a long time here at Crosswinds. He was not an original apostle, but he was a traveling companion of the apostle Peter. In fact, it almost seems like we're listening to Peter as we read John Mark's gospel. The Gospel of John. It's written by John, who was one of the apostles. If you go to his letters, he says, These things we have seen with our own eyes. I'm writing you my eyewitness testimony about what happened with Jesus. Now, folks, you say, well, how do we know this is true and authentic eyewitness testimony? The New Testament letters, particularly the Gospels, were written within such a short period of time after the life of Jesus that if they were a bunch of fabrications, the eyewitness testimonies of people who were there would have laughed those books out of town. The eyewitnesses who were still alive when the Gospels were written didn't laugh the Gospels out of town. They agreed with the Gospels and supported the Gospels. So it's, it's true. These are things that we know, why we know that uh, the miraculous nature of this book. Last piece of evidence I'll give you on this one. The Bible is a transforming book. And as a pastor, I have a unique privilege on this one. I get to meet people whose lives oftentimes are in shambles, whose world is falling apart, who are stuck in addictions, who are trapped in their sin. And what I always do, and I know you would do the same, is you just get out God's Word and you give them God's Word. And you watch God's Word change a life. I like the way the Scripture says it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. This book is used by God to transform people's lives. Show me any other book that can take somebody locked in sin, take somebody locked in drug addiction, take somebody whose marriage is falling apart and completely change their heart and make them into a new creation and restore their life. Any other book that can do that besides the Bible? There is none. It's because this book is supernatural in nature. I like the way the book, it says it in Hebrews. God's Word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. So I've given you some evidence for the supernatural character of this book, that it's literally God's Word. Let me take you to the next point, which is the Bible is a trustworthy book. Here's some evidence for that. We know the Bible is true because God's character is true. The Bible tells us it is God's words to us. But the Bible also says that God is always truthful with us. He's not like sometimes lying to us and sometimes telling us the truth. For instance, Psalm 119, which by the way, I know that we've preached on here in previous years. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's all about God's Word and the great value of God's Word. It says this, But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are what? Are true. John 17, verse 17. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is what? Which is truth. Or Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. It is impossible for God to lie. God can't lie. 
And yet, this book, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, is God's very words to us. So we know there are no errors in it. It is a trustworthy source of truth. Psalm 119 verse 142 says this, Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. God could only speak the truth. And here's another one, Titus chapter 1 verse 2, Which God, who never lies, promises before the ages began. Now, some people will make the argument. They'll say, okay, well, God never lies. God is always true. But maybe God didn't lie. He spoke His words into the apostles' mouths, and they got it wrong. They wrote it down wrong. So when God gave it to them, it was right, but they wrote it down wrong. And so we don't have the truth. That was a question I had for a, uh, a while when I was in my 20s. And then I started thinking about it this way. You know, if God cannot say exactly what He wants to say through a prophet's mouth, then I guess He's not God at all, is He? God is able to make the prophet say exactly what He wants them to say when He gave His words to them or for us through them. So we know that it's true. Here's another piece of evidence. Uh, it's one of my favorite ones, actually. The Bible is true because Jesus claimed it to be true. Jesus believed the Bible was trustworthy. Jesus believed the Bible was true. Even the miraculous parts of the Bible, even the parts that seem supernatural and hard to believe in the Bible. And I would put it to you this way. If you can trust Jesus to save your soul this morning, you should be able to trust Jesus from what He talks about God's Word. In other words, what Jesus believes about the Bible should be the same things that we believe about the Bible. For instance, Jesus constantly used God's Word from the Old Testament to back up His teaching as the source of authority for His teaching. He took the miraculous Old Testament events, by the way, at face value. He considered them literally true. For instance, uh, let's take Noah. Sometimes we hear today the idea of a worldwide flood and, you know, Noah and his family being in this big boat and, you know, the, all the animals being in the boat and that's what happened and everything else was wiped out. We think, well, that's probably just like myth. That didn't really happen. That's like historically true. Jesus thought it was. He says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And his point was, as in the days of Noah, people were going on about their life. and They thought Noah was a crazy man and, to, and until Noah entered the ark. And then it, but Jesus assumed that literally happened, didn't he? He says, by the way, it's going to be the same way when it comes to the return of the Son of Man, which will literally happen, just as Noah and the flood literally happened. Jesus considered it true. You've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Some people think that is myth, the idea of fire from heaven raining down on these cities, burning them to nothing. Uh, Jesus didn't consider it myth. Jesus considered it historical fact that it literally happened. Matthew eleven twenty four. 24. But I tell you, 
that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. It will literally be more bearable for the city of Sodom, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, than for you, O Capernaum. Jesus considered that a fact that actually happened in history. How about uh, the idea that when you had the Exodus generation go into the wilderness and wander around the wilderness for 40 years? Remember the idea where oh, the Bible talks about manna from heaven being given, giving given six days a week and not seven days a week? Supernatural bread from heaven fed these people? That really happened? Or is that legend? Is that fiction that people repeated enough times that we actually believe it? Jesus believed it to be literally true. He says, your father ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. He says, this literally happened. Incidentally, Jesus believed in a literal Jonah. Remember this? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, he says, was literally three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. He said that story literally happened. And just as Jesus will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, literally happened, not figuratively, actually happened is true. Now, here's a good quote is to help us understand how Jesus treated the Bible that He had. He says this, For I... For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You've probably read that, you know, an iota and a dot, and it means nothing to you. Let me give you a little bit of background. An iota, it's, it's, it's a, a yod. In the Hebrew alphabet, it is the smallest consonant on the page. It's like an apostrophe. It looks just like that. He says, not a dot. Now, the vowels in Hebrew actually go under the consonants, and uh, the smallest vowel is a dot. It's like a, a period. Jesus says, not the smallest consonant of a letter, not the least valve in a letter, will pass away from God's law until all is accomplished. Jesus' view of the Scripture is that every consonant and every vowel is literally exactly what God wanted to say to us. That is the level of authority that Jesus held the Scriptures in His hand, metaphorically at least, if He didn't have it in His hand metaphorically or literally. But that should be the same kind of level of authority that we give the Bible that we have. It is literally, historically true, and we trust it. Now, you'll see why this is an important thing to understand. Let's get to the next line of evidence. The Bible is true because as God's Word, that logically means it must be true. Now, some pastors and some teachers, and you'll run across them, and I know you have them here in the Spencer community just like we have them in our Spirit Lake community. They have a different view of the Bible than Jesus has of the Bible. They will say the Bible is mostly true, though it's not completely true. They'll say the Bible got some things right, but it also has some things wrong. They'll say, well, it's okay because we can trust the big ideas in the Bible, but the facts they say in the Bible are not always trustworthy. 
Does that make sense? Is that the view of the Bible that Jesus had? Now, you say, who would say those kind of things? Let me tell you about a guy here. This is um, Adam Hamilton, and he's from the United Methodist Church. I pulled this quote directly off of the United Methodist website, and this is what Adam Hamilton says about the Bible that we hold in our hands. People ask me if you have to read the Bible literally. Well, that hinges on what parts of it you are reading. When you go to Genesis, Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden, those are archetypal stories. Those are not the stories of actual ancient people that lived thousands of years ago. They're trying to tell us about ourselves. We don't read those stories literally. We are Adam and Eve. We don't believe they are literally true. And then a little later in the quote he says, take the story of Jonah being swallowed by a whale. That story is meant to be read prophetically not literally. Did it really happen? Well, I'm okay if it did, but that is not the point of the story. What do you think? Is he out to lunch? Is he holding an improper view of Scripture? You go to the book of Romans and you look at Paul's writings, and Paul talks about a literal first Adam and Adam being the source of sin and the problem of sin entering the world, and a literal second Adam called Jesus, who is the solution to sin in the world. But if you don't have a literal first Adam, then you don't need a literal second Adam, do you? The whole logic falls apart. I'm sorry, Adam Hamilton, you are disagreeing with the Apostle Paul, which I do not think is a really good idea to do. He also disagrees about the idea of a Jonah. He says, ah, Jonah doesn't have to literally be true. You know who you're disagreeing with on that one? Jesus. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That literally happened. You don't want to disagree with Jesus. Yet that is what, quite honestly, he's doing. And I have to tell you, that is the rubric for a lot of the mainline denominations. They do not take this book as literally true. They try and explain away portions of it, the difficult portions. They say, we don't necessarily agree with, or the Bible got it wrong. But here's the problem. As soon as you start to say that you're an authority over the Bible, the Bible got it wrong, and you get to just cut out the parts that you think where the Bible is wrong, what do you start cutting out? Everything that disagrees with you. So instead of repenting and submitting to this book as the authority in your life, you just make this book submissive to your life. It's completely wrong. I'll show you another example. ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Here's what they say. By the way, this is right off their website, guys, so I'm not making this stuff up. Having done this listening, we sometimes conclude either that the writer's culture or personal experience, this is talking about the Bible authors, authors of Scripture, such as the subordination of women, the keeping of slaves, seem to have prompted that he was missing what God was saying or doing, or that God is now saying or doing something new. The authors of Scripture missed what God was telling them, and they wrote it down wrong or that God has now changed His mind. What? 
Is that the kind of view of Scripture that Jesus had? Answer me. No. But yet that is where many of the mainline denominations have gone. And by the way, at Crosswinds, you're going to find a very different approach to Scripture. We submit to this book. This is a supernatural book. This is a trustworthy book. Our view of Scripture is the same view of Scripture that Jesus had for it. It is literally true, even the miraculous, seemingly difficult parts of the Bible, which is, by the way, is why we preach through the whole thing. We don't just cherry-pick what we want. We stick through the whole thing because we need all of it, because all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable for correction, for reproof, for reproof, for training in righteousness. We need all of it. And it's literally true. That is what we believe at Crosswinds. This brings us to my third point, which is the Bible is an authoritative book. Now, some of you know that I like to work out, keeps me sane, helps me manage my stress. I work out over at F45 in Arnold's Park. And uh, there's a, the manager there, and I first came in there, he didn't know much of my background or anything in lifting and wrestling and athletics. So I started lifting some weights as we're going through the circuit training, and I grabbed some heavier weights, and I'm going away at that, and he looks at me and he goes, hey, you don't want to do that. You want to go for a lighter weight, buddy. Now, as a 55-year-old man and the oldest person in the room, when somebody tells me to do a lighter weight, what do you think I do? Ha! <laughs> I'm going to go heavy. You see, the deal is, he may be an authority in the gym, but he's not an authority in my life. He can make suggestions to me, but I don't necessarily have to listen to those suggestions. Here's the problem. Far too many people look at the Bible the same way. They think the Bible is making a bunch of suggestions for our life. They do not see it as the authority for their life. And when the Bible says something, we don't just get to blow it off. We have to submit to it. We have to listen to it. Because it's true. Remember, it's a supernatural book. Remember, it is always 100% trustworthy in what it says, because God cannot lie. And these are God's very words to us. John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is that a suggestion? Absolutely not. It is authoritative truth. The reason that is true is because the Bible says the problem in this world is not who is in the White House. The Bible says the problem in this world is not the difference between the rich and the poor. The problem in this world is the heart of man that is addicted to sin. And the only way that problem can be solved is by Jesus who came to solve the problem of sin. Not just pay for our sin, but to change the very orientation of our heart with sin. So we love Jesus more than we love our sin. Which is why all the other religions out there are a dead-end road, my friends. Buddhism is a dead-end road. Islam is a dead-end road because they don't understand that the problem is sin and Jesus is the solution. And that's not a suggestion from the Bible. That's the authoritative words of the Bible. Now, the Scriptures tell us that as we go through life, as Christians, 
we can respond to God's Word in one of two ways. It's found in Matthew chapter 7. It says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because they had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The difference is not do people have the truth of God's word. In that particular pericope, the difference is do they apply the truth of God's word? Do they not just see this book as their authority, but do they submit to it as their authority? I would ask you, are you someone that when you read this word, or you hear this word taught by Pastor Jordan or by myself, and the word of God convicts you of something, do you repent and change and build your house on the rock? Or do you just continue, sort of try and forget about it, try and put it off, and continue the way you were, and build your house on the sand. Let me give you some examples here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. When it comes to your language, the Bible says we should be building others up, not tearing others down. Is that a suggestion that you've blown off in your life, or the authoritative truth that you want to submit to in your life? that your words build others up, not tear them down. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, said that the marriage bed be kept pure, for God will judge the sexually immoral. Are you somebody who's sleeping with your girlfriend? The Bible says God will judge that, repent of that. That's not a suggestion for relationships. That's the authoritative truth of how God deals with relationships and how we honor Him in our sexual relationships. Or how about this one? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 says, Let go of all bitterness. We are to forgive others as we have been forgiven. Holding on to bitterness, that's a little bit like uh, swallowing poison and expecting the other person to get sick. You know, holding on to bitterness doesn't hurt another person. It only ends up hurting us. And God's Word says we have to forgive others like God has forgiven us through Jesus. That's not a suggestion. That's the authoritative truth of God's Word. So how we treat this book, it's sort of like we're building our house on the rock, we're building our house on the sand. Now, the last part here. The Bible is an essential part of knowing God. Imagine um, if you were at work and you were walking by the cafeteria. And on the other end of the cafeteria, you see two people talking. But you can overhear what they're saying and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, they're talking about me. They're talking about you and what you like to eat, what your favorite food is how your job performance is going, how your marriage is, and you're like, how are these people talking about me? I've never met them. I don't even know them. They know nothing about me. 
So what right do they have to speak about me authoritatively if they've never spent time with me? That would be weird, wouldn't it? Yet in this world, many people do the same thing with God. They speak about what they think God wants, about what God would do, but they've never spent time with Him. They've never heard from Him. They've never read His book. The only way to know God as He actually is, to speak to others about God accurately, is if we know Him through His Word by which He reveals Himself. The Bible says in Psalm 19 that God reveals Himself in one of two ways. One is through creation. Obviously, we can look out there and we can see that God is incredibly powerful. He's incredibly complex. He's incredibly beautiful. But the other way God reveals Himself to us, and it's the only way we can know Him truly and in a saving way, is by His words to us. And if we do not spend time reading God's words, and then we talk about what God thinks to others, we can often misrepresent Him because we don't know Him. If you know this statistic, I think it's 98% of Christians are said to have a Bible in their house. But only 19% of Christians have the Bible open more than two times a week. Once is church. How can we claim to speak about God authoritatively if we don't know Him? Now, let me just tell you a little bit more about the value of God's Word here. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord, that's God's Word, His laws, are perfect. You know what they do? They revive the soul. You ever get weary, broken, and depressed? You know how to revive your soul? Not Prozac, not saying that's wrong, but I mean, it's the Bible. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Uh, Guys, I'm... Not that smart. I really am not. But I want to always get in God's Word because I know it's like a mental boost. It makes me a lot wise, wiser. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoicing, rejoicing the heart. You know when you read God's Word, it literally brings joy into your life? Do you ever have that? Anybody experience that? Just me. Yeah. And then we read this. The commandments of the Lord are pure enlightening the eyes. You want to be able to see life clearly clearly, and situations clearly? Look at it through the lens of God's words. I like as it continues in Psalm 19. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, in this book's words, there is great reward. The Bible says if you had to choose between winning the lottery but not having a Bible or having a Bible and not winning the lottery, it would be better to have the Bible and not win the lottery. That's how valuable this book is, greater than much fine gold. This book is like honeycombs. It's like sweet. It's like chocolate. It's good for us. It's satisfy and joy producing. So what I want to say to you is I've talked to you about the incredible supernatural nature of this book, the trustworthy nature of this book, the authoritative nature of this book, that this is 
book that tells us the truth. This is the book that gives wisdom to the simple, gives us joy in depression. My friends, I want to challenge you today for this year to get into this book. There is nothing better for us as Christians. There is nothing more needed for us in this world than to put our finger in the text. Now, we have something that we've done here at Crossman's called the Take Up and Read Challenge. That is that through, um, we want to challenge you to read through the New Testament in one year. You, know, you can do that by reading just five chapters a week, Monday through Friday, one chapter. We did that last year, and we're going to do that again this year. And in your uh, handouts, you have a Bible reading card. I'd encourage you to join us in that Take Up and Reading Challenge. This book is the most important thing you can have in your life. I've tried to give you that for a variety of angles. Now, some of you uh, who are a little bit more energetic in this area, uh, you're like, well, what about the Old Testament? As part of our Take Up and Read Challenge, we also encourage you to read the Old Testament. And the pace that we're going through it is reading the Old Testament one chapter a day for not five days a week, but six days a week. And if we do that, you actually end up completing the entire Old Testament in three years. I know by mistake it says two years on your card. I botched up the math on that one. It's actually three years. But the point of that is to give a simple, bite-sized chunk for us to read on a regular basis, at least the New Testament and maybe the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, to keep our finger in the text. Remember, this book is just as important as daily bread. As much as you need to eat lunch today, you need this word in your life. So I'd encourage you to take up the Bible reading challenge and take it seriously. We want to be a, a congregation where our finger is in the text and we have great confidence in this book as our authority that we submit to. And I hope that will always be true of Crosswinds Church. It's one of our distinctives that we believe this book, literally all of it, is an errant and God's words to you and to me. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to share today the Spencer campus about the supernatural quality of your word, the trustworthiness of your word, and the authority your word has over our life. May we be people who build our house, the house of our life, on the rock, not on the sand. Men and women who don't just hear the Word and forget what we read, but men and women who hear the Word and then submit to what we read. May we be a church family who not just content ourselves with hearing the Word read to us and taught to us by great preachers like Jordan on Sunday morning, but may we faithfully open your book, consistently putting our finger in the text, text asking the Holy Spirit to teach us Change us and revive us through your living, active, holy word. And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.